Amen. So good to be with all of you this morning. Worship the Lord alongside of you. Sing praises to his holy name. Uh, It is truly a joy. Let's continue our worship this morning as you turn to the book of Psalms. We'll continue in our summer series in the book of Psalms here, and we are in Psalm 47. So if you'd turn to Psalm 47, and then stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 47, this is God's Word. For the choir director of the sons of Korah, a psalm. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Make a loud shout to God with the sound of a shout of joy, for Yahweh Most High is fearsome, a great king above all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has ascended with a loud shout, Yahweh with a Sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The nobles of the people have assembled themselves with the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Lord, that's what we seek to do today is exalt your holy and righteous name. We want to lift your name up high. We want to sing praises to you for you alone are worthy of our praise. I pray that you would be with us, change our hearts even through this text this morning and be glorified in our time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. For the choir director of the Sons of Korah. This is certainly a familiar heading this summer, isn't it? Uh, These songs of praise from the Sons of Korah. There will be a couple more right after this one, 48 and 49. A few more scattered throughout the Psalter. And whether these sons arranged these hymns for David or others, or whether they collaborated amongst themselves and wrote them under divine inspiration, we do not know. What we do know, however, is that they were the sons of Korah, from the line of Korah. Korah, the son of Izhar, who we read about back in Numbers 16. Korah, who did not share the same sentiment about the Lord as did his sons and his grandsons after that. You see, while the sons of Korah rejoiced in took delight in, found satisfaction in the ultimate rule and reign of Yahweh, the great I Am, Korah fought against it. While the sons found refuge and security in the sovereign will and divine decrees of the Lord Most High, Korah, back in Numbers chapter 16, took issue with them. Uh, He took issue with God's ultimate control over everyone and everything in his creation, including the one he appointed to deliver his people from the enslavement to the Egyptians, from the bondage to Egypt. Korah, along with Dathan and Abiram, along with 250 leaders of the people of Israel, rose up against Moses. They gathered together a a group of rebels, a 
band of dissenters, and they begin to plot together how they might usurp the authority of Moses and Aaron. Again, 250 leaders, the text says, joined forces in this rebellion. This was no small coup attempt here. This is not uncommon, of course. Uh, In fact, it happens quite often, even in our churches today, doesn't it? Uh, Usually, uh, one or two folks get upset about something. They rise up. They cause trouble. They take a few families with them, even a large group of naive men and women along with them, and they repeat the cycle over and over and over again, no matter where they go. Now, by God's grace, he's spared us from that, and we're very thankful. But it could happen in the future. There really is nothing new under the sun, you know. But oh, how far the apple fell from the tree when it came to Korah and his sons. Korah led the charge against Moses saying, listen, this has gone on long enough. Why are you exalting yourselves over the assembly of Yahweh? In other words, Korah said, who made you boss? Who appointed you as ruler over this people? As if he hadn't just seen the plague of frogs and gnats, and the hail, and the darkness, and the death that overtook the land as all of the firstborn of Egypt were slain in a single night, as if he hadn't just observed the Lord's Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as if he hadn't just seen the pillars of cloud and fire guiding the Israelites as they made their way out of Egypt, these Israelites who were weighed down with gold, having plundered the Egyptian people without so much as raising a finger in battle. As if Korah hadn't just seen the parting of the Red Sea, as Moses said, Do not fear. Stand by. See the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. As Yahweh said to Moses, Raise up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and split it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Surely Korah saw all of this, right? Or was he, to borrow the words of Elijah, Uh, relieving himself the whole time. Who made you leader, Moses? Why do you exalt yourself over the assembly of Yahweh? If you can remember, Moses didn't even want to be the guy, right? He said to the Lord, who am I? Send someone else. God said, no, you're the one. You're the one. Now he has to hear from these instigators who told him, forget it. We're not going up with you. We're not going to follow you. We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to go along with your plan. We're not going to go along with the supposed will of the God of Israel. That's what they're saying to him now. There have always existed people uh, in this world who have rebelled against the sovereign rule and reign of the Lord Most High. Uh, It's always been that way. Ever since the fall, since the serpent whispered into the ear of the woman, did God really say? There have always been those who have been uncomfortable with the thought of a God who reigns supreme. There have always been those who have been obstinate to the reality that God sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. There have always been those who have sought to minimize or dismiss altogether the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh over all things. And typically this comes as a result of either A, a person's outright disdain for and rejection of their creator, or B, more commonly in the church, the hope of preserving some shred of human liberty or free will, which they feel gives them some ability to alter or amend that which was decreed from before the very foundations of the earth. 
They think they have a say in including, of course, the salvation of their eternal souls. Which, again, when it's all said and done, is nothing more than a form of denial or rejections of God, uh, rejection of God's right to rule over all. And ultimately, it's a denial of God's nature, his character. This is very serious. Psalm 47 is the opposite of uh, the rejection or minimization of the reality of God's total sovereign rule over his creation. Psalm 47 tells of men and women who find their greatest enjoyment in, greatest soul satisfaction in a God who reigns supreme. Psalm 47 is a celebration of the sovereign dominion of the divine king of the earth. No mere pharaoh, no mere president or prime minister or temporal earthly king, but the king of kings. This is a psalm. This is a song of the sons of Korah who were spared and placed on a different path than that of their father, a path which they would walk upon and now lead others to walk upon exalting the awesome name of their sovereign Lord all along the way. That's Psalm 47. This is a song, this is a hymn of praise to the sovereign king of the heavens and the earth. And you can see the tone is set right from the first verse, right? Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Make a loud shout to God with the sound of a shout of joy. This is no case of the frozen chosen. This is no example of what some have called the bland leading the bland. This is no ho-hum, tiresome, stale, barely raise my voice for fear of what others might think of me singing like we see in some churches today. No, this is lively. This is enthusiastic. It's inspiring. It's exhilarating. It's It's an exhilarating exaltation and glorification of the Lord Most High through song. Clap your hands, the psalmist says. Now, I talked about this with Noel a couple weeks ago. I'm not much of a hand clapper, personally. Uh, I love to sing praises to the Lord. I love it. I sing them loud, and I sing them proud, but I just can't get into the clapping. I told him, maybe one of these. If I, <laughs> if I get really into it, I'll go up on my tippy toes a little bit. But I just can't get into the clapping. I just can't get into it. I'm not a clapper. I'm, I'm also, though, not against clapping. How could I be? It's right here in the scripture. It's a biblical uh, practice. Folks should clap if they want to clap. Put your hands up if you want to put your hands up. Sway. It doesn't bother anyone here. If it's sincere. We, we had a guy here some time ago. He practically lay down during musical worship right there in the aisle here. He prostrated himself right in the aisle. Nobody cared about that. It didn't bother anybody. Why? Because it was genuine. We knew it was sincere. We knew it wasn't just some manufactured emotional response like we see with the Bethels and the Hillsongs and churches of that ilk. No, it was real. And the worship in Psalm 47 is real. It's as real as it gets. Matthew Henry said the same. He said, uh, Such expressions of pious and devout affections as to some may seem indecent and imprudent ought not to be hastily censured and condemned, much less ridiculed, because if they come from an upright heart, God will accept the strength of the affection and excuse the weakness of the expressions of it. That's a great quote. In other words, 
Part of the sovereign rule and reign of God over all things is the fact that he is totally omniscient. He knows everything, including the intentions and motivations of the hearts of men and women who offer praise to him. So clap those hands if you want. Raise those hands if you so desire, but make sure you're doing it with sincere motivations. Don't worry about what others think about you. Only seek to please the one who knows your heart. These sons of Korah, they had proper motivation and plenty of reason to praise their creator. Look at verse 2. They said, For Yahweh Most High is fearsome. He's a great king over all the earth. He is a great king over all the earth. What does this mean that Yahweh Most High is fearsome? Well, here's what it means in the simplest terms. It means we are not like God. We are not even close to being like God, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. We can't comprehend in our finiteness what it means to be like God. We can't comprehend what it means to be perfectly holy, holy, holy. That he is creator, we are created. He is absolutely and totally independent. He depends on no thing or no one outside of himself to operate within his creation. He is not bound by time or space to carry out his good pleasure. We, on the other hand, are absolutely and totally dependent on a source outside of ourselves to operate within the confines and parameters that have been assigned to us. Even the greatest among us, the greatest men and women who have ever lived on the face of this earth have been totally dependent on him to survive. It's the same for every person in this room hearing my voice right now. Just try to focus on this for a minute, okay? The very next breath you take will only be taken because he allowed you to take it. The next beat of your heart, the next surge of blood that rushes through your arteries and is pumped throughout your circulatory system, is pumped into those lungs and into your brain and every muscle fiber enabling you you to sit there and consciously listen to his word this morning is a gift from God. He sustains you even at this very moment as you sit there. And he could call you home like that. Any second now, take that next breath. That's from him. But nobody is sustaining him. Nobody grants him another moment of existence. This is known as the aseity of God, by the way. It's the independence of God. He is totally independent. That's why he called himself I am, which is the ultimate declaration of self-existence. It's reserved for him alone, just him. That's what Yahweh means, by the way. I am. I just am. I'm the uncreated creator. Moses will go on to say, God, I'm going to the sons of Israel here. I'm going to tell them that you sent me, but they're going to ask me, okay, what is his name? What shall I say, what shall I say to them, God? God said to Moses, Yahweh in the Hebrew. My name is Yahweh. I am who I am. 
He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name from generation to generation. Hyper-religious Jews today in their false piety won't even say his name or write it out. Even though he said, this is my name, call me by my name. So why don't they do it? This is how he had to communicate his name to a people who don't have the ability to even come close to comprehending his infinitely glorious nature and majesty. I am. I just am. And because he is, and he alone possesses the power to extend life or take life as he pleases, therefore he alone is to be feared certainly revered in a healthy, worshipful sense, a reverential fear, but also fear, uh, fear in the sense of dread. Dread. Jesus said the same thing, right? Do not fear those who can kill the body only. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Where? In hell. Fear him. In the context of this psalm here, men and women, unbelieving men and women, nations of unbelieving men and women should dread, they should be terrified at the thought of his righteous rule and reign because they will one day have to stand before him to give an account because he is the true king. He is sovereign, not them. Korah found this out the hard way, okay? God said, okay, you want to go against my sovereign decree? You want to go against my guy here? He told Moses and Aaron, speak to the congregation, saying, get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses said, what happens next will confirm my calling from God. Just then the ground that was under them split open, the earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. He opened up his earth and swallowed them like that. The psalmist says, Yahweh Most High is fearsome. The believer reveres him. The unbeliever dreads him because he is king. Vladimir Putin is not king. Kim Jong-un is not king. Xi Jinping is not king, as fun as it is to say. Might be a good bumper sticker. George Soros is not king. Klaus Schwab is not king. Joe Biden is not king, obviously. Justin Trudeau is certainly not king. Frankly, he'd make a better queen. Or princess, maybe. You know what? Donald Trump wasn't king either. Neither was Reagan or Roosevelt or Lincoln or Jefferson or Washington or Lenin or Stalin or Churchill or Hitler or or Genghis Khan or King Henry VIII or Constantine or Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great or Nebuchadnezzar who went out on his palace balcony one day glorying in himself saying, Is this not Babylon the Great which I myself have built as a royal house by the strength of my power? And for the glory of my majesty? Daniel says immediately he was driven away from the people and began eating grass like cattle. 
His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Who drove him away and who turned him into a beast? Well, Yahweh. Yahweh Most High. The true king who allowed all these men that I just named to have a little bit of influence for just a little bit of time. Then comes judgment. Jeremiah said, There is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great, and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes. The nations cannot endure his indignation. He is fearsome. He is a king over all the earth. That's verses 1 and 2. Verse 3, the sons of Korah give a nod to his sovereign electing choice. What they themselves had witnessed in Israel. He, he called them out of nothing. Not because they were the greatest of all people. They were the fewest of all people, as it says in Deuteronomy 7. He chose them. He subdued their enemies. He gave them the land that he had promised to give to them, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. That's why he chose them. Not because of any redeeming quality within themselves, but because of his steadfast love because of his loyal love for them. Selah. This great, fearful king of all the earth is no mere dictator. He has a love, a steadfast love for those who are his, including you, if you belong to him by his amazing grace alone. Pause and meditate. Psalmist then goes on in verse 5 to detail both why and how we ought to praise him, saying, God has ascended with a loud shout, Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet. This is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant going up uh, before the people in 2 Samuel 6. As the Ark, which was uh, symbolic of the presence of Yahweh, was brought to Jerusalem, the text says there was great celebration. David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of Yahweh and shouting with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. The psalmist says uh, here that the people of God are to do the same in his day and even in including today and forevermore. Look again at verse 6, okay? He says, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. Again, the psalmist, is, the reader is encouraged to sing out to the king of kings. But notice, again, there are parameters. There are guidelines here. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. A masculine. A song with purpose and meaning, depth, divine truth, not just mere hyper-emotionalism, not just bizarre repetitious chanting or moaning or sounds, 
There not only has to be sincerity of heart, but also a soberness of mind. Now, some of you know I went to that big charismatic church down the street a couple of years ago. It was not a pleasant experience, but it wasn't my choice. My, one of my dearest mentors, Alex, he said, yeah, go over there, check them out. See what goes on in that place. Well, I'll tell you, it was chaos. It was a madhouse. There was bumbling and there was mumblings. There was incoherent, ecstatic speech with all these instruments. They were all playing at the same time. They had no real order or arrangement. In fact, it was complete disorder. Worst of all, it was a disorder and confusion that they were attributing to God, the Holy Spirit. But this is not the pattern of worship that we see God, the Holy Spirit, lay out in the Psalter, is it? Clapping? Yeah. Go ahead. Instruments? Of course. We've got a trumpet right here. But all of the examples of biblical musical worship are orderly. They're purposeful. They're meaningful. With the greatest instrument of all being what? The human voice. That's what the psalm is encouraging here. What we seek to emphasize here at Lakewood, the voices of the congregation. Our, our collective voices being raised to the Lord through theologically rich and doctrinally sound hymns and songs, not strobe light solos, productions, and talent shows, but congregational worship and praise. Sing praises with a skillful psalm, he says. Now watch as the scope expands from the sanctuary to the temple to the whole earth and finally to heaven in verse 8. God reigns over the nations. It's true. God sits on his holy throne. In other words, he is God over all people whether they acknowledge him as God or not. The guys that we referenced earlier, our current world rulers, they don't know God. Ultimately, they hate God. Just like Korah hated God, as the kings of the earth hated God in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth who take their stand against, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear fetters apart, their fetters apart, and cast away their cords from us. We're tired of this divine oppression. We want to do what we want to do. The, the rulers of the wicked world, they want nothing to do with God. They say, he will not be king over us. But the psalmist says, oh, but he is your king. He is sovereign, even over them. He put them there. Proverbs 21 says, he guides the hearts of kings like channeled water. He controls them. And despite their defiance, they all end up carrying out his sovereign rule and reign over the earth, kicking and screaming as they might. And again, I love how the psalmist takes this uh, to the heavens in verse 8. Yeah, the earth is one thing, the nations are one thing, individual lives are one thing, but don't forget, he spoke this universe into existence. The, The sun is where the sun is because he put it there. And same for the stars. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The sun rises from one end of the heavens in its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. He did that. He did that. No mere man did that. 
And he sits in his glorious throne in heaven and rules over everything. And you'd be a fool to deny it. But the psalmist says the true people of God don't deny it. They don't fight it. They don't rebel against it. They don't minimize or dismiss God's sovereignty. But instead, they revel in it. They exult in it. They want more of God's sovereignty. They want to trust more in a sovereign God. And they praise him for it. Let us come into his dwelling place. Let us worship at the footstool of his feet. Where's his dwelling place? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. Yahweh has established his thrones in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. This psalm is all about people's response to the sovereign rule and reign of the king of all creation. So let me just ask you this morning. What is your response to the sovereignty of God over all things? I know I've read this long quotation from Spurgeon at least once, maybe twice. I don't know, three times. I don't know. But it's so appropriate for our text today. Just listen to this. I want you to ask yourself while you're listening to these words of the Prince of Preachers. Ask yourself, which view describes you? He said, quote, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit on that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except for on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed at and loathed. Then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. End quote. Which one are you? 
how do you view the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, over this world, over this country, over this state, over this church, over this congregation, over your family, over your life, your entire existence, and yes, even including the salvation of your everlasting soul? Do you, like the psalmist, love the reality that he rules over you as your king? Or do you, like those in Psalm 2 and those in Romans 1 and so many living today, absolutely despise him for it? To the point where they say he doesn't even exist. If the latter describes you, I... Pray that Yahweh would soften your heart to the truth so you would experience the joy of the psalmist. Clap, shout with shouts of joy, he says. Five times in two verses, he says, sing praises to God. Sing praises, sing praises to your king. Sing praises, sing praises with a skillful song. Does that sound like someone who's oppressed to you? No, true oppression is continuing to spurn God while remaining in bondage to your own sinful lusts. To the unbeliever here, I would say, don't fight it any longer. Stop kicking against the goads. Stop resisting his sovereign rule and reign. To the nominal Christian, or even the spiritually weak, misled Christian, I would say, stop your futile attempts at minimizing his sovereignty over all things, including the eternal destination of your everlasting soul. Stop. Stop giving humanity more credit than we deserve. We will fail you every time. Every time. You need to know this, my friend. Not only are you absolutely and totally dependent upon him to live and breathe and function in this world, but you are in absolute subjection to his reign, whether you go along with it or not. And if you keep fighting this reality, you will live a life of misery in this world, all while having to give an account for it in the next. You see, if you're sitting here this morning and... You hate the thought of a God who reigns supreme. If you're sitting here thinking the last thing you would ever do is bow your knee to him as king or with your tongue confess him as Lord, I want you to know there will soon come a day when you will have no choice but to do so. When you stand before his judgment throne in the heavens, every knee will bow to him as king. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But interestingly, we don't even have to wait for that day before we see this very thing take place, at least here on earth. Okay, I want you to look again at verse 8 and then look at verse 9. Look at this. He reigned supreme at the creation of the universe. He reigned supreme over the nations in the past. He reigns over both the nations and the hearts of those who belong to him in the present. Now look at verse 9. The nobles of the peoples have assembled themselves with the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This ninth verse speaks of a time when all the earth, everyone living 
on this earth will praise the name of God for his righteous rule and reign over all creation. They will assemble themselves together with Israel, the true Israel, the true people of God, and along with the nations whom he promised back in Genesis 12 to bless. This is both Jew and Gentile. Everyone living on the earth at the time of verse 9 will be considered as the people of God and they will worship him as such, including the shields of the earth, the protectors, the warriors of this earth, all who belong to him. All of his people, every man, woman, and child will assemble together on this earth where his name will be highly exalted. Let me ask you, my brothers and sisters, has this happened yet? No. Did I miss it somewhere? No, it didn't happen. Has every tongue confessed on this earth that highly exalted the name of Yahweh? No. But they will. When? I believe it's at the end of the tribulation period. When an entire generation of ethnic Israel, when all of Israel will recognize the true king of kings, the Lord, and they will recognize that This king of kings, the Lord of lords, actually came and dwelt among them. The one Isaiah spoke of when he said, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, the one who did come who was born, born of a virgin, who was given by his father in heaven. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, who came into this world and was worshipped as a king when he was just a boy, after having his life threatened as an infant by another king who hated God, and hated his sovereign rule over the earth when the Magi came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. Gnats are not going to be in heaven. (laughs) This is a part of the curse. Every time I see a gnat, I think this is a part of the curse. This caused Herod to be very enraged, so much so that he killed all the male children, these little babies who were in Bethlehem, all of its vicinity, two years and under. Can you imagine? But this king from Yahweh was delivered from the wrath of Herod and was taken back to Egypt, only to return to Galilee to a town called Nazareth, where he would be brought up under the law. But unlike other men, he would walk in perfect obedience to the law. He would not deviate from the left to the right, or the right or the left of the will of his Father in heaven. His Father in heaven who said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He was pleased with his Son because the Son is perfect. And he has been ever since the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, including the stars and the sun that we talked about earlier. For he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians once said, the firstborn of all creation. Not that he was created, but 
that he had prominence, that he had preeminence, like a royal son who was given the throne of his father. The father who is pleased with the son because the son is perfect. The son is perfect because the son is God. Truly man and truly God. And don't take my word for it. Don't just believe what I'm saying. His very son came into the temple conversing with some Jews and he told them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. But they said, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am? I am who I am. And they all know exactly what that meant. And what was their response? They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus himself, or hid himself, and went out of the temple. But it wouldn't be long before he stopped hiding himself. For at the right time, their lust for divine blood would be fulfilled. It wasn't long before the kings of the earth would finally make their move to come against Yahweh and his anointed and give him what they felt was a proper coronation, where he would get an earthly crown. As John says, Pontius Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him. This is a brutal lashing with a cat of nine tails with these long whips. It's a scourging where these hunks of metal and bone would come and they'd grab the flesh and then they'd rip it off. That's a, they'd bludgeon him with sticks as well. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him and they were coming to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They're slapping him in the face. As Pilate comes out and says to the strong of God-haters, Behold, I am bringing him out so that you may know I find no guilt in him. Even though he's already bloodied. And I find no guilt in him. Jesus then comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Only to be shocked and uh, terrified at their cries to crucify him. Crucify him. Saying, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Saying, release for us Barabbas. Saying, his blood be on us and his blood be on our children. Causing Pilate to say again, behold your king. Just last week, many of these same people were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were covering his path with palm branches as a direct fulfillment of the words of the prophet who said, Behold, your king is coming to you. Lowly, mounted on a donkey. But now you're crying out away with him? away with him? Crucify him? Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests of Israel said that. So Pilate then delivered him over. 
and deliver them over to them to be crucified. My brothers and sisters, they crucified the king of the heavens and the earth. They, they murdered the God of all creation. They slaughtered the perfect son of God. And guess what they would do if, they, if he walked among us today? They'd do the same exact thing. Would you be among them? Is the question. There are only two responses. <clears throat> Those who revel in and celebrate the absolute sovereign rule and reign of the Lord Most High and joyfully submit to Him as King who willingly submit themselves fully to His total lordship over their temporal and earthly eternal lives and everyone else. So which one are you? Here's the good news. If you're alive today, if he's granted you 2,000 more breaths or whatever, depending on how rapid your breathing is, if you're alive today, if you can hear his voice through this text today, you can still be among those who serve him as king. Your wicked heart can still be changed. And by his sovereign grace alone, through faith alone, in the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You don't have to be like Korah. You don't have to be like Dathan or the chief priests of Israel or the wicked men and women of this corrupted and cursed earth. He came to set his people free from their enslavement to this corrupted, evil world system and the bondage to their own sin nature. And he's coming again to slay his enemies and establish his earthly rule and reign from his throne in Jerusalem, just like he said he would. When the clouds break open and there appears a white horse and he who sits on it is called faithful and true when in righteousness he judges and wages war treading the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. This one who has on his garment and on his thigh a name written King of King and Lord of Lords and everybody, everybody who does not know him all unbelieving men and women will die they will be cast into hell and they will await their judgment before the great white throne. And it's at this moment, this very moment when he comes back to his earth to defeat his enemies that, they, that he will receive the coronation that he actually deserves. And every tongue remaining on the earth at that time will give him the praise and adoration spoken of here in Psalm 47, verse 9. The nobles of the peoples have gathered themselves. They've assembled themselves with the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. My friends, do you know this king? Do you worship this king? Yahweh Most High is fearsome. He is to be feared. But he also abounds in steadfast love and mercy and forgiveness, so much so that he sent his son, his 
perfect son into the world to die for those whom he foreknew, the elect, those whom he predestined for salvation and reconciliation to him from before the very foundations of the earth, those who would, through the faith that he gives them, because he's the author and perfecter of faith, call upon his name alone for forgiveness of sin through his glorious gospel of grace. He sent his divine king to die for his subjects. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that we would be declared perfect in his sight, perfectly righteous and holy in his sight because of the sacrifice of his son. Are you one of those? Are you rejoicing in his sovereign rule and reign this morning? Then clap your hands. Make a loud shout of joy to your king. Sing praises to your king and long for that day when you will see him face to face as he welcomes you into the kingdom of heaven forevermore. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray now and we'll have Noel and the team come up and lead us in musical worship. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, Lord. We, it is a privilege to adore, adore thee, a pleasure. Thank you for softening our hearts to the truth, the reality of your sovereign rule and reign. We wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you for forgiving us for at one point longing to have it another way, but we don't now. We, we celebrate your sovereignty, Lord. I And I pray that if it's your sovereign will, if there are hearts here today who who aren't softened to the truth of your gospel, who aren't singing sincerely and genuinely the praise to their king, I pray that you would change their heart. I pray that you would save their souls. We want to be with them 10,000 times 10,000 years singing your praises. You alone are worthy of our praise. So we give it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.